Hello everyone, this is Rising Above Shadows of Abuse, the weekly podcast for anyone currently experiencing trauma, pain, shame, guilt, anger, and wants to eradicate these negative emotions. I'm your host, Grace Upper. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. Welcome listeners to another thought-provoking episode on Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. Janelle Montreux is a Canadian living in South Carolina, USA. Last year, after the Child Protection Service, CPS in South Carolina took her children away because they decided that their mother was unable to look after them. Abuse survivor Janelle wrote, It is so incredibly lonely being in another country by myself. I feel like an alien because everything is so different. I wish the CPS would just give me back my children so I could go back home to Canada with them. In October 2019, when she was trying to leave her abusive husband, South Carolina's CPS took the children off her, stating that she had allowed them to witness the abuse against her. As if Janelle could have prevented this any more than she would have avoided being the victim of domestic abuse. For the same reason, the CPS refused to let her take the children home to Canada. She is currently living by herself whilst drawing attention to the failings of a system that is weighted against those who are predominantly women who are desperate to have their children returned to them. U.S. judicial system further victimizes by ensuring victims can't get their children back. This I wasn't aware of. It is against the very principles of justice and self-contradictory. It is a shame to call itself a judicial system, which in place of solving a situation, aggravates the suffering of the affected. I quote, courts should be helping domestic abuse survivors, not further victimizing and taking our children away. The U.S. judicial system further victimizes by ensuring victims can get their children back. The CPS takes children from survivors trying to escape. Victims of violence are blamed. Their children taken. Janelle was subjected to years of physical, mental and surveillance abuse at the hands of her psychopathic, narcissistic husband. Not only was she the victim of continual abuse, he continually gaslighted her, hacked her phone to control her life and her identity and told the authorities that she was a drug addict. She says, and I quote, he's a man who will use anything and anyone, even their own children, to destroy you. Living one is complicated and dangerous, and you should do so as soon as the opportunity arises and before it's too late. He was eventually arrested and convicted on three counts of domestic abuse and is currently serving a prison sentence. Janelle revealed her deepest fears from the traumatic experience, and I quote, In all honesty, I'm not supposed to be here. He did everything he could to make sure I disappeared or was dead. I love life and I don't intend on wasting a minute of it. End of quote. Rising above shadows of abuse, desperately wants Janelle to have her children back with her so that they can all return to Canada and continue their lives as a family. The inspiring and resilient guest I have here today with me is Janelle. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Kindly tell us a bit about yourself, your story, and your activism. Well, um, I guess um, my story starts well in 2013 when I was um, I was living in Canada, 
And I had moved to the U.S., to South Carolina, and to be with my uh, my husband. Uh, he was my husband then, but and so I moved to South Carolina, and we had um, our two children in 2015. And the like, the abuse didn't start like right away. Like everything was fine. Like we had like five years where it was everything was normal. I thought everything was great, and it wasn't until. Um, late 2018 that the abuse actually really started. So like, I can see like where people would say that, like, oh, why didn't, why didn't you leave? Why didn't, why didn't you leave sooner? Well, you know what? Like abuse doesn't start that way. It doesn't start like immediately, like you start getting smacked around. It starts really, really slow, like little tiny things of control over long periods of time so that you kind of get accustomed to being abused, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It wasn't until like um, until 2018 when things started going downhill, and I didn't realize it at the time that that's when he started having an affair. <clears throat> so meanwhile, like I'm I'm trying to like I thought it was me that I was doing something wrong. So I'm I'm taking care of the kids. I'm taking care of the house, and he was just angry. He was angry all the time, and I just I didn't understand why. And so um, so that's that's how it started. And then by the time like. Um, 2019, early 2019, I was already starting to make a plan to, to leave. Like the abuse had gotten too terrible by then. Like I, we got into, I think maybe two arguments and one where I was physically assaulted. <clears throat> so, but I knew enough of abusive situations where I didn't want my children to be raised in that kind of environment. But by the time that, by the time it came around to actually leaving and when I did leave, of like the money I had put away, it was gone. Everything I had was gone. All my credit cards were maxed out. I was halfway to Canada with my children and I just, there was nothing there. There was nothing left to leave. Mm. I had no choice but to return. And that's when the abuse got extremely bad. <clears throat> By the time I went back to him, it was, the abuse was daily. It was every single day. That must have been very difficult for you. It was. It was extremely difficult. We lived in the country. Okay. So, and I didn't, like, I, I didn't have any family around at all. I, like, I still, like, I live, well, all my family is in Canada and I'm still in the U.S. Okay. So I didn't really, I didn't have a support system. And what I didn't know then that I know now is that he, well, he was in the military. And he had learned computer programming in the military. Okay. So he was, he knew how to hack basically. Okay. And I, I had no idea that he had been watching me for years on my phone, mm. like using the, the phone's camera. And he was getting all my text messages, all my emails. I had no idea that that was going on, that he, I was being watched that closely. And so by the time I realized it, it was, like I, I didn't understand computers at all. I didn't understand phones and what they could do. And I, like, I knew something was wrong. I just, I just didn't, I couldn't put my finger on it. I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't understand then like why no one came to help me. So yeah, it was very much a situation where I was extremely trapped. Like when I called 911 or I would call a friend. The phone would just ring and ring and ring. No one would pick it up. And conversely, when someone, when someone would try to call me, 
the mm-hmm. phone would just, no one would answer because all my calls were rerouted to him. So wow. I, was, I was being abused daily, every single day. And I had no one to come help me. You said you told the police, what happened? So the first time I called the police was actually, I used his phone. Uh, He was arrested. Uh, The first time he was arrested was in June and he was let out the next day. And I jumped the gun a little bit and he had only hit me a couple times. So by the time the police got there, there wasn't, there wasn't any physical bruising. Um, I was just really, I was really, I was terrified. And he was arrested again in August. And again, he was let out the very next day. So I was very like, every time like he would, he would come out, like it would, it would, it would get worse, a lot worse. I remember this one particular incident when I came, I, I only have flashbulb memories of this day. And basically he threw me from a truck, a moving truck. Oh my word. What? Yeah. And I just, my memory is like, it's like I have flashes of it. And then my face is being dug. He had, he had put his foot in the back of my head and he ground my face into the dirt. And that was after I was thrown from the vehicle. And then I, I don't remember anything. And then next thing I remember, I'm under a tree and he's beating me over and over on the side of my, on the side of my face, on the side of my arms. And then there's nothing again. And then another memory, he's, I'm being dragged by my hair across the lawn. And I faintly remember my children screaming and no memory again. And then I'm crawling on the ground, trying to get away. And I, there's blood pouring from my face. That that's all I remember of that day. And I st- I tried to call nine one one, and the phone just rang and rang and rang. Nobody nobody came to help me, and our closest neighbor was like a quarter of a mile away. But so by the, by the time I did leave, it was October thirtieth, and I had contacted my lawyer, and he was going to help me leave my husband. So I was going to go pick up five hundred dollars from him. And that's the money I was going to use to leave. And I told him that I was leaving him and he seemed fine. Like he took it really well. And I'm like, oh, okay, great. This is, this is going to work out fine. So we went to our storage unit. And as soon as I walked in, he walked behind me and he said, and it was late at night and the kids were sleeping in the car. And he said, now no one can hear while I kill you. And he took a cord and he wrapped it around my neck and he dragged me to the ground. Oh God. And I don't know how I got away, but I, it was raining too. And so I kind of squeezed my way through between the, between the door of the, uh, the storage unit and in between his vehicle. Squeezed through there and he grabbed me by my neck and he threw me across the, the pavement. And I got up and I started running. And I heard my son crying for me. So I turned around and I went back. And he grabbed me by my, by my neck again. And he had me in a chokehold. And he told me to say goodbye to my children. And next thing I knew, I, I woke up and I was in the back seat. 
and he let me go to bed. And so the next day, the beating continued. He said he was going to drive me to a field where no one would find my body. And we fought from, from Greenville, from Spartanburg to Greenville. It's about a 30-minute drive. It took us three hours to get there because he kept pulling the vehicle over and slamming his fists into my face. So by the time we got there, my face was, it was, looked like an egg. So we went to a stoplight and I looked over at my son and I unbuckled him and I wasn't wearing any shoes. There was blood all over my shirt. And I grabbed my son and I ran with him in the rain all the way to my lawyer's office. He met up with us there and my lawyer was, he was in shock. He couldn't believe how horrible I looked. And I told him that my husband was trying to kill me. And he told me to leave and he gave me $500. My husband dropped us off at a hotel and someone from the hotel seen my face and they called the police. And that's when my children were taken. And how laws work in South Carolina, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they're, they're the same in every state, is that <clears throat> children that are like witnessing abuse, even though the, the female tries to leave, they're at risk of being taken by uh, child protective services. And that's ultimately that's what happened when I did try to leave the very last time my children were taken from me. Wow. That is really a, a devastating story. Yeah. And I'm still trying to get them back. And it's that was in 2019 and it's now 2022. And do you, are you you're allowed visits, aren't you? Um, I was allowed, um, what was it, two, two hours uh, every month. And that was it. Wow. In July um, 2021, my rights were taken from me. So I don't get to see my children at all anymore. Why was that so? Um, well, because I was living in a hotel. Okay. Um, because of the identity theft, like when he was hacking me, he actually, he stole everything I had. Absolutely your identity, everything. your money, everything. Everything, absolutely everything. I had my credit rating went down to, I think, 200. And so in South Carolina and in the U.S., like to get, to get an apartment, to get a place, to get a job, you basically, you have to, you have to have credit. And I had none. So who's paying for your fees, your hotel bills? Um, I was getting COVID relief money from Canada and that's how I paid for my fees. Okay. Plus I was, um, he had stated, he had told um, CPS that I was a drug user, which I'm not. He told them I was schizophrenic. I'm clearly not schizophrenic. And it was all like part of his ploy to like, to keep, keep my children from me and to keep people believing in the abuse that had, ha that had happened. So I was taking drug tests every week, uh, going to counseling, yeah. um, jumping through all these hoops to try and, to try and get my children back, but none of it did any good. I'm really so sorry to hear this. So sorry. Someone shouldn't be experiencing this kind of. Uh, pain, this kind of 
wickedness. Because this is how I see it, this pure wickedness. But I'm happy you're alive. Me too. You said in one of your posts, you learned a hard lesson. Abuse changes you. You are no longer who you used to be. Kindly explain this. Um, I used to be, I used to be this uh, like really, I, I would say naive person. I used to think that when people told you things that they were being honest with you, that there was, there was, there was no really harsh realities of the world. And, and now when I'm, especially when I'm meeting like, like males, my first thought is what, what's, what's their agenda? What's their end goal? Yes. They really think they up to, are they up to something behind my back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really not that same person that I used to be that are really naive about the world and naive and narcissistic abuse, psychopathic. Like I'm very much a different person. So in a way, it's it's traumatized you. Yeah, in a way, yes, and but also made me smarter about how people can be. Not everyone's like that. Yeah, but it's always in the back of my mind. Like you know what? Like you have to watch for your, you have to watch yourself. You have to be careful. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So what happened to your children? How did the children feel or cope? I know that was. There's a tight bond between you and your children because when you visit, they want to leave with you. How did you yeah. handle this? Um, it's still it's still really hard to talk about because like I miss my children so much and and there's a, there, there's nothing I could do like I can't yeah. yeah yeah and like I know with my with um, speaking with DSS or CPS they. They said that they both had trouble adjusting um, after every visit. And I said, well, of course they do. They miss their mother. They yeah. want to be their mother. Mm. <clears throat> so they have that. I know they have like, they're having a hard time adjusting and whatnot. There's really, there's nothing I could do except keep fighting in court to try and get them back. And after you told them um, that, you know, your children miss you and everything. That didn't really improve uh, the situation you were in. No, not at all. Um, well, at first, um, when the children were first taken, I tried to take them back to Canada with me. Okay. So I, I drove to Canada to get help because I'm, as, as a Native American, um, there are certain rights um, regarding children. And um, people from the band office, my tribe, they actually flew down to South Carolina to try and get my children for me. And the lawyers at the SS actually... Um, they refused to release my children to, to the Canadian tribe. So that was, that was blocked right there. Oh, this is really difficult. I can see from your expression that you're finding it difficult to actually talk about this because we're talking about your own flesh and blood. Yeah. Yeah. They were taken when they were two and three. They're now six and seven. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry to hear this because I'm a mother, so I can empathize with you. Yeah. So would you say the courts or judicial system uh, victimize or fail domestic uh, abuse survivors by taking their children away from them, especially in moments of intense trauma? 
I think the courts in the U.S. are incredibly biased against victims of domestic abuse. We're not only are we victimized at home, but when we try to leave, our children are, are definitely in danger from being taken from DSS and CPS, whatever, whatever, every state calls it different, a different name, but <clears throat> it's very much a sad reality for many, many, many victims. And it's happened to so many people I've, I've spoken with. As soon as they call the police to report the abuse, the children are immediately taken and the victim is actually victimized more by the system. So it, the, the judicial system does not work for victims at all. And, I can, and I've told them, this is why victims do not call. This is why victims do not report anything because they don't want their children taken from them. And it's also why women choose to stay in those relationships because you know what, There's, there really is nowhere else to go. So on that premise, do you think human traffickers and abusers get away with their crimes using the judicial system? Can you yes. cite an example you've experienced? Um, well, when my, my abuser tried to sell me to human traffickers, um, it was in April, at the end of April um, 2019, and I was surrounded by police cars. And they stated that they were... I was being neglectful of my children in the, that were in the vehicle. And they, they had me on the side of the road for four hours and they ripped apart my vehicle and they were looking for, I don't know what they were looking for, but they were looking for something to try and find a reason to take my children from me. Mm. And so like it very much works against the, the victim in, in all aspects. And it wasn't until like I, my repeated phone calls over and over and over to him. Mm. And I don't know who he called, but all of a sudden they, they said it was fine. They let me go. Wow. That is terrible. Yeah. I'm just trying to process this because there's a lot to take in at the same time. Yeah. I'm wondering how you survived the onslaught actually, that particular um, case, a scenario. Um, well, I hadn't, it was very much like um like like a fog like i really at that time like i had no idea what was going on like i didn't i didn't understand anything like i thought we were happy and then all of a sudden we really really weren't and then then the money was gone and i just i could not make sense of anything like i was just it, i was very like i was trying to put all these pieces together and i just couldn't figure it out and it mm. wasn't until, um I would say at the end of 2020, yeah, where I kind of piecing everything together and figuring out like what happened. Hmm. And so basically he was having an affair and he decided he didn't want me or the kids anymore. So he stole my identity and bankrupted me. And the, he, at, at that time, he was telling people that I was an escort, which made absolutely no sense. His boss actually called and told me that um, what he was saying about me and that he was firing him for it. And he let me know what was going on. And I was like, I'm like, I, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he say that? But now I know it was that that was a whole setup for me being sold to human traffickers so that when I did go missing, no one would look for me. Hmm. 
So, but I did, um, I did manage to escape unharmed, completely unharmed. And then, so in around 2021, and I'm piecing these together, I'm like, okay, so he did that. He sold me to human traffickers to get rid of me. He stole my identity because he didn't want to be with me. He, he did all these things to get rid of me. And yet I'm still here. I find this really horrendous, terrible, because I'm thinking if you don't want a woman anymore, all you needed to do was call you and say, well, we need a divorce. For him to go to such an evil extent, a wicked extent, I can't really wrap my head around it, actually. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I didn't, I still don't understand why he couldn't just let us go, but he chose to do what he did instead. I'm really proud of you because you're a strong woman. I don't know how you survived it, but I'm grateful you're still alive to tell your story and kind of encourage other women. So this leads to my next question. What is self-love? How can women or anyone going through domestic violence imbibe this? Please give examples. Well, self-love is, you know what? I made concessions for him because I thought, well, if, if you love me, you wouldn't treat me like this. And you know what, what I should have said to myself is, you know what, I love myself and no, this is not okay. You cannot treat me like this. It's not a love. Love love isn't if you, if you love me, you'll do this. If you love me, you'll, you'll treat me this way. It doesn't work that way. I should have loved myself enough to say, you know what, put my foot down and say, this is not okay. And I should have walked away a long time ago when it first started. But at that time, I just, I felt like I, I think, I think I needed to love myself more and realize that, you know what, I didn't deserve to be abused. I didn't deserve any of the, the maltreatment. I didn't deserve any of that. And if I had loved myself more and re- recognize that early on, I, I would have walked a lot, a lot sooner. Okay. So how do you know you're ready to leave your abusive partner and never go back? I think it's different for everybody. Um, yeah, because you could tell a woman, like, you don't deserve to be abused. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve that. But it, it's not until like she's ready on the inside when she feels strong enough that she can leave and never go back. That's, that's when you're ready to leave. I think mm. this is quite deep, actually, because you said it depends on each um, individual. So you talked about um, the DSS taking the children, and I know you said you've been representing yourself in court for quite some time. So right. that leads to the next question. What is the 26 weeks family violence intervention program about? You know what? I have no idea. Like I'm, I was never really worked with like on that level. Like they just basically stated, well, we've, we've told, been told you're on drugs. We've been told that you have a mental illness. Um, we want you to, we want you to take these drug classes. We want you to take all these drug, drug tests. And I was tested like, once, twice a week for months and months. And I didn't do drugs. I don't do drugs. I went through mental health evaluations. I went and seen a therapist and none of these things that he had stated were true. So the 26 steps, I have no idea what they're talking about because 
like you could like like I said like I said before like I planned to leave him I had everything in place but none of that did any good at the end so um was your doctor not involved because I definitely know that your medical doctor or the general practitioner you were seeing yourself and the children so to speak must have been able to say something on your behalf was that um, not the case well, the therapist that i actually um that i was seeing she yeah she went to court for me and she stated that there is nothing wrong with me mentally she said i do have anxiety and i have ptsd from the abuse mm -hmm. but she said that's normal considering the extent of what i went through and it had no, no bearing on my ability to parent my children at all. Okay. It did not make a difference. That's really difficult. And it's really sad to hear this, that you, you know, the courts were not on your side at all. So that, that, that leads me to the next question. What is cognitive? What is cognitive dissonance? Did you experience this? Um, cognitive dissonance, it's, did I experience? No, I didn't. I don't think I experienced it at all. Like I, everything I went through, like I, I think happened for a reason. And I'm not sure yet, <laughs> but maybe it's to help other women. I'm not, I'm really not sure. I, yeah, I don't really think I've experienced that at all. Yes, you said you're not sure what the purpose of what you went through, mm -hmm. uh, what the purpose was for. I believe, um, from my own perspective, is for you to encourage other women who've gone through similar experiences and kind of um, say they are able to survive this and make something better out of their lives because you, you're trying your best and um, creating more awareness to other women out there that, no, this really happens. This is my story. And sharing your story also encourages other women that, you know, they should be strong enough to leave um, an abusive relationship. Right. Well, I am. Um, I'm also writing a book, too. Can you tell us a bit about your book? Um, well, basically, it's it, it's just my my life, what I, everything that I've gone through, especially detailing the abuse. Um from I would say March to October of 2019, the abuse was was daily. And I remember at one point, like I I'd studied psychology because <clears throat> I stayed I studied at home doing online courses. Um, and I read this um, I read this book on Martin Seligman on learned helplessness. So basically, there's like his experiment. There's a dog. And it's in a cage and it keeps on getting zapped. And every time it tries to leave the cage, eventually that door is open, but the dog knows that if it tries to escape, it's gonna, it's gonna get zapped. So eventually it just stops trying. And I think I felt, I did feel like that at one point where like I thought, I felt very hopeless about my situation. Like I accepted the abuse as it was normal when when he was getting ready, like, because he followed these certain patterns, like if, whenever his cell phone would ring, I would get hit. Or whenever he would <clears throat> start saying, oh, 
he would get these maps on his phone or he would get a notification. He'd be like, oh, 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 you're cheating again, aren't you? And then I, I knew it was coming. So I would, I would just wait to get beaten. And I remember particularly after this one, one instant and I thought, I'm, I'm like that dog. I'm just sitting there and I'm accepting this and like it's normal and it's not normal. And that's when I decided, you know what, I'm going to start, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start fighting back. I may be not as strong as him and I may be weaker than him, but you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try and fight back against him. You were fighting to, to stay alive, actually. Yeah. So Yes, the beatings were horrible, but I was trying to, I was fighting, fighting back and I was still trying to protect my children. So what you've, your experiences and what you've shared with me, how can women or anyone rise above the shadows of abuse? I think it's realizing that, you know what, there's so many other people out there that it, it's not just happening to you. Domestic violence doesn't have like, just because you have money, you're not going to get abused. Just because you're, you live in this area, you're not going to get abused. It happens to every single person out there. It can happen to anybody all over the world. Men, women, doesn't matter. And you know what? It's not, it's not your fault. Mm. Yes, that, that's what I always tell women when I come across someone who's gone through any form of abuse. I tell them it's not you. It's actually the perpetrator. You know, it's not your fault this has happened. But the problem is with the perpetrator, the abuser, they've got issues that they need to resolve and they need to seek for professional help. Right. And but sometimes, too, like that professional help, like my my abuser, like I believe he's I believe he's a psychopath. And because of only someone who who would purposely like he would pick up his own sock and say that I was cheating on him. Only someone who has like that, like really deeply ingrained, like mental problems could, could treat someone so horribly and not feel an ounce of guilt for it. So, and, and in those cases, like no matter how, no matter how many hours of therapy that person has, they're always going to be an abuser and you're, you're not safe with that person. You need to leave immediately. I'm actually glad he's behind bars because if he wasn't, there's a possibility someone might die from yeah. the treatment he's going to be meting out to them. So I'm happy he's behind bars now. You said in one of your posts, you've learned a hard lesson. Abuse changes you. You're no longer who you used to be. Kindly shed more light on this. I'm no longer the naive girl I used to be no longer unwise to the manipulations of people in the world that not everybody out there is your friend that you have to be you have to be really careful when you're dealing with people like especially people who have ill intentions for you like because they words should match actions that's how i gauge people now they should totally completely match if someone's actions are different than their words you know what there's something wrong because because if just because someone loves you and then they treat you badly that's that's not okay 
And that's, that should not be happening. When someone loves you, they treat you like they, like they love you. There, there is no, it's not a spectrum. It's either it is or it isn't. And that's it. That's how it is. And I'm a lot smarter about people now, I would have to say. I can imagine because, you know, you learn right. from experience. And, you know, psychologically, you're also growing. So I, I do understand what, you, what you're saying at the moment. So people's words should match their actions. Really? So that's like oh. a, a, a telltale sign, so to speak. That's the, yes, that's the first sign I always go for now. Because like people, they, they say they, all these nice words and whatnot, but you know what, if, if their actions don't match that, that's manipulation. Here in that, yeah, that's really deep. But I hope people would uh, would um, learn from what you just said. Yes. So that leads me to another question: What happened to your children? How do the children feel or cope? I know that there's a tight bond between you and your children uh, because when you visit, they always wanted to live with you. How did you handle this? Um, well, my children, like they, they acted out after every visit and DSS tried to say that they did that because they didn't, that they were having a hard time adjusting and that they should, they should shorten the visits with me. And I said, no, that's not, that's, that's not what it means. It means that they wanted to come home with their mother. And of course they're going to have a, hor a horrible time adjusting because you know what? They want to come home with me. They don't want to be away from me. It, DSS tried, they really did their very best to make, make it seem like I was the problem and their behavior adjusting was because I should not be with them. And that's not the case whatsoever. And you just told me um, that, you know, when we're discussing earlier on that, you know, you don't know where your children are. No, I don't. You've not seen them for how, how long now? Since July of 2021. That's really difficult. I can understand where you're coming from because I'm a mother myself. You know, the bond between a child and a mom is very, very tight. So it shows the judicial system is not really favorable to um, victims or survivors no. of abuse. No, it's not. Well, especially in the US, like as soon as a victim calls the police, DSS, Child Protective Services, is immediately involved. And the victim is put on, is it, it, they're victim blamed. They're blamed for the abuse, they're blamed for not leaving, they're blamed for every single thing that, that happens. And so that's why victims choose not to call the police. That's why victims choose to stay in their abusive situation. Because it's, like, as, soon as, that, as soon as the children are taken from, they, they, they do not ask questions and then act, they act. And they don't bother asking any questions whatsoever. They don't bother giving any help. Um, like when my children were taken, I was not given the opportunity to go to a safe home. I was not given any opportunity for any help whatsoever. They just, they took my kids and that was it. So is that the case in um, other, other states in, the, in America? Because I know it's different here. 
when you report and there's evidence, they put you in a safe house, yourself and the children. And lots of charities come to your aid that support you in the UK. So that's not the case in the US. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's not the case in the US at all. Like there's safe homes all over, but you're you're penalized for reporting the abuse. Um, the first safe home I went was actually in March of 2019, and DSS CPS they they came to the safe home to take to take my children from me, saying that I put them in an abusive situation. Well, and you I'm didn't like, cause the abuse. No, I didn't. And I told them I was trying to. I'm leaving. I'm trying to. I'm trying to leave him, and it did not make any difference. So it looks as if back in the U.S., uh, they they really don't um, help victims of uh, domestic violence or any form of abuse. Well, they don't. And I told the one DSS worker, and I said, you know what? Coming from Canada, this is a you. The U.S. is a first world country. The world looks up to them, looks up to the U.S. as like this, this pillar of freedom. And I said, I expect it's so much better. What if you were in the in, in Canada? Do you think the it would have been different? Your treatment, yes. the treatment you got. Yes, I think it would have been a lot different. Like DSS in Canada in the US has way too much power over over every like everybody. Like they don't ask questions at all. As soon as someone says that, oh, you have like you're experiencing some type of abuse, they they come and they take your children from you immediately. They don't especially when it comes to victims of domestic violence, like they, there's no help for us whatsoever. Well, you said it's much different in, in Canada. Yeah, in Canada, I've spoken to a, a number, of, um, number of friends and number of organizations, and they said that never would have happened up in Canada. Yeah, I know. Same here in the UK. You never would have had, as long as you've got the evidence, you'll be supported. You'll be yeah. supported. And I know in Australia now, they, they kind of give, um, help, prefer help to victims of domestic violence. They give them time to go off work for them to appear in, for, for, for them to go to courts and, you know, file for maybe protective order and things like that pertaining to the abuse they are suffering. So it's really difficult. I can't even wrap my head around it anyway. Yeah. yeah and, and I know in cases against like, especially in South Carolina, uh, lawyers are not provided to, um, in cases against DSS at all. So if your children are taken, you have to pay for your own lawyer, no matter what your financial situation is. This is really you, sad. It's really yes. sad. You know, from what we just talked about, the legal system is not favorable to um, victims of domestic uh, violence or, or any form of abuse. I think then the, the legal, the legal aspects should, um, or the, the courts in the U in the U.S. should take a leave from other countries. Then, yes, definitely. But and the thing is, like, I know this would never happen in Canada. But you know what, like the laws here are so, so slow to change that, you know what, the best way to do that is to create, to let other countries know, like, look, this is what's happening in the, in the U U.S. By having that support and letting people know exactly what's going on in the U.S. 
because we're supposed to be like this pillar of of freedom and change and whatnot. But really, when it comes to domestic violence victims, we we have no support whatsoever. And if we have like other countries looking at us and saying like, look, this is this is how it is over there. Why can't why can't we be be like that? I think that'll create a lot more change and a lot more awareness. Okay, so that leaves me. Um, I mean, it leaves me a bit confused because I thought the um, women activists will do more. They really are trying. They, but you know what? There's only so much that they could do. Like it would be a lot easier if, like, well, that's why I'm glad like this is airing in the UK because you know what? If people would see like what it's like over here, then you know what? Ha- have that public support, have that push for lawmakers to actually make that change. Because if people like the system, they think that no one knows like what's going on. But with like public pressure, that's how you create change. That, you're, you're quite right. And that's why I was really happy that you put a lot of um, what has happened to you on Twitter, on Instagram. You know, it's uh, social media is um, worldwide, it's global. So hopefully... Really- they will become more aware of um, what needs to be done and changes will be put in place. Right. Well, cause I know like um, <clears throat> when I, a year, about a year ago when all this was like really like kind of reaching their height in the court system, a lot of people on my behalf contacted the Canadian consulate and asked them to help me in the U S because my, my Canadian government was actually doing nothing whatsoever to help me. And the, cons- the consulate in Atlanta, Georgia, she called me and she asked, she's like, oh, what's going on? And I said the same thing as before. I'm trapped in this country. My children are trapped in this country. And I'm like, you will not help me get my children back. And, but it's kind of like that, that same, that, that same process. It's like if enough public support, enough public awareness is out there, that's how we create that change that's needed. So how do you cope? Um, well, like the whole social media aspect of it, getting my story out there, letting them know what's going on, and knowing that I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to leave this country without my children because I'm, I'm their mother. If they can't count on me, who can they count on? So I think in, like, it, in the long run, it, it'll help me. It'll help, it's helping other women. It's helping other victims either leave their situation or knowing inside of them that, you know what? You can keep going. You can keep fighting. So do you have any final words for the listeners? That no one, no one, no one deserves to be abused. You can always leave whenever you're ready. You know what? You, you pack your stuff and you go and don't look back. You're better than that. You're stronger than that. You deserve better than that. And your children deserve better. Don't give up. Don't give up, women. You heard your know. If you're going through any form of abuse, don't give up. Leave while you're still alive. Thank you so much, Janelle, for coming on the show. If you've enjoyed this particular episode, kindly subscribe, comment, and leave a review. See you on our next episode. Bye for now. Bye. For more Rising Above Shadows of Abuse news, head to our Instagram.com page or YouTube.com page forward slash Rising Above Shadows of Abuse. And our email address 
is risingaboveshadowsofabuse at gmail.com to interact with us. See you soon. Rising Above Shadows of Abuse podcast with Grace